Gentlemen, welcome back this week. Today we have another amazing, very exciting episode of The Superhuman Life. Joining me on the show is none other than Coach Jacob Fishbein. Jake is an executive coach and facilitator who specializes in helping people and teams make and navigate their most pressing choices. For Jake, coaching is about learning. Learning about yourself, your choices, your results, and how you can choose differently to create something new for you and the people and communities you impact. Now, in addition to his work with individuals, entrepreneurs, and corporate professionals, Coach Jake works with men to inspire them to trust themselves, live authentically and vulnerably, and step into the arena in their personal and professional life. He's been working with men for more than half a decade. He's working on writing a novel about what it takes as a man to take responsibility and show up vulnerably. And he co-facilitates his own men's group, The Arena with his mentor and frequent collaborator, Nicholas Papadoulis. Now, Kate Jake has received his professional coaching certification from the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. He's a PCC accredited coach through the International Coaching Federation and is an ACE certified coach, accelerating coach excellence after training with David Peterson and David Goldsmith, some pioneers of the coaching industry. In this conversation, guys, you can expect to learn how you can better understand the dynamics of toxic relationships, the importance of setting boundaries for self-preservation, the role of story and myth in our lives, self-discovery and its role in personal growth, and strategies for breaking free from abusive relationships, and so much more. Before we dive in, guys, I'll remind you that we release brand new episodes every single Monday. If you want to make sure you never miss another one, Pause this episode right now. Hit that subscribe button. And guys, if you're getting value out of these episodes, do us a favor and leave us a five-star rating and written review. Without further ado, guys, let's get into today's conversation, understanding relationships, story, and personal growth with Jake Fishbein. We love you guys. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Superhuman Life. I'm your host, Frank Rich, and this is the only podcast in the world that is dedicated to helping men level up in the five key areas of life. Each week, we bring you real and raw conversations with the world's leading experts in faith, fitness, finance, family, and freedom to provide you with real actionable tools to break limiting beliefs, take action, and shatter the glass ceiling on your life's potential. So jump on board and join me on this journey as we dive into today's conversation and unlock the keys to you becoming the man you were born to be and creating your own superhuman life. Jake, how'd you get into the men's coaching space? It's a funny story, Frank. I never intended to be in the men's coaching space, but my mentor, Nick Papadopoulos, about seven and a half years ago, asked me to write a book with him about a men's group. He's not a writer. I am. I got tingles down my spine when he asked me. I said, yes, let's do it. Let's write it as a novel. And shortly thereafter decided, if I'm going to write a book about a men's group, I better be in a men's group. And that's what kicked off my journey into men's work and men's coaching is writing the book with Nick. Uh, We're almost complete. We're doing one final revisions, and then it's going to be into the publication process and trying to get it published. So it's been an eight-year journey almost working on this novel, which led me to getting certified as a coach, starting my own men's group and doing the work that I do today. Yeah, so seven seven years working on a book, man. That thing's going to be jam-packed, man, right? It's going to be jam-packed. It's uh, the single most transformative journey I've ever been on is writing a novel about a men's group. 
and having to go deep into my own soul and my own experience to write all of these different characters and really learn what what it means to be a man through the process of writing this book. Oh, that's great, man. Let's let's unpack that here a little bit, man. What what are some of the things you've learned? Maybe let's start with with your own self. Like what has this journey taught you about Jake that Jake didn't know, you know, seven years ago? Oh my goodness. Do we have about 10 hours? <laughs> if, if we gotta if we gotta go, man, we'll we'll go and we'll make multi, you know, multi-episodes out of this one. You know, it's such a great question that for me, I mean, where to begin? I mean, the first word that comes to my mind is relationships. That in many ways, this novel, this story is about relationships. And I think a men's group, being in a men's group is about relationships. But I learned, I mean, each draft had me tackle a different relationship in my life and heal a different relationship and come to terms with how I wanted to show up in my relationships. The first draft, I was dealing with a, a rough friendship with my best friend as I had done a lot of personal development work and he was thought it was very weird and it inspired the beginning of the book, our friendship. And that first, uh, the first draft was me exploring my relationship with my dad and our relationship and the relationship we had when I was younger. And as I was becoming an, uh, an adult, I was 24 when I started writing the book, 32 now. And then each subsequent draft, it was a different relationship. Drafts two and three were a lot about my relationships with women and how I wanted to show up with women and, and how, you know, how men get to show up in their relationships with women, but also how men get to show up in their relationships with other men. That so much of this book was, I mean, I think my biggest learnings were about relationships and ultimately the relationship with myself that in 2018, I went to Nova Scotia for a week to write. And I'm, I love to write. I love to go away to write. And I went to Nova Scotia and there's a lighthouse there that I went to with my mom when I was right after graduating college. And I had a really impactful experience with the light keeper at this lighthouse. His name was Darcy. And he actually inspired the first, the name of our protagonist in the book, whose name is Darcy. And I was struggling with a lot of things at that time, both the book and the relationship I was in, in my own career. And I was like, I was going to go to this lighthouse where I thought I'll have this epiphany. I'll figure out who I am and what I need to do. And it was April and there was a big ass snowstorm and I got stuck 2.7 miles from the lighthouse and was, I call myself the worst names you can possibly imagine. And on the drive back to Halifax, which was a three hour drive, I started singing to myself. It's one of the ways that I process. And I realized that a man cannot find his light in a lighthouse. He must make it for himself. And that came from writing the book that I would not have had that recognition and chosen this path without going to Nova Scotia for a week to work on a novel, this novel, and without trying to go to that lighthouse and realizing that I didn't need the lighthouse at all, that the light I was looking for was the light that I had within myself. Mm, that's beautiful, Jake. Thank, thank you for, for sharing that story. In your opinion, you talked about some key important relationships there, right? You know, you talked about relationships with friends, you know, specifically your best friend kind of served as like the launching pad. You talked about uh, male female relationships, the importance of maybe intimate, you know, intimate relationships. And then you kind of touched on the relationship with your father as well. And I even heard you mention a little bit about the relationship with yourself. Curious in your opinion, what's the most important relationship in a man's life? It all, uh, absolutely with himself. And that goes for a man or a woman, anybody. 
the most important relationship we have is with ourselves because the way that we see the world is a reflection of how we see ourselves. Well, that's great, man. And I would, I would, I would, I would, I would agree there as well. Where, where do you think most people, I, I, I think you and I would probably both agree that probably a vast majority of the issues that men, women, relationships are facing, you know, couples, marriages is oftentimes rooted in either a self-destructive relationship with yourself or, you know, any, any other type of, you know, adjectives we want to attach to that. So where do you, where do you see that a lot of men are struggling most in their relationship with themselves? The biggest thing that I see in running groups and working one-on-one with men is so many men don't believe that they matter, that they put others first. They think they need to look and show up a certain way. They take care of other people without taking care of themselves. They believe in happy wife, happy life, that there's this this deep-seated belief of that they don't matter, that they're not good enough. And I think that is the, the biggest issue in that relationship with self that I see affecting men is when someone doesn't believe that they matter, they make choices that are destructive for themselves and for others, and they end up looking in the world for evidence for how they don't matter and thus how other people don't matter too. Yeah. Now there's a big, you know, talk in the, you know, in the male space, the masculinity space, you know, we've, we've had great conversations here about the importance of becoming a provider, uh, in, in the home, you know, being a protector of, of others, um, you know, stealing from kind of Ryan Mickler's, uh, language over that order of men, you know, protect, provide, preside, all of those are focused on the external relationships. So, you know, hearing you say, it's like, we got to begin to kind of look within and work on that, that inner stuff. But everything I think that I'm hearing that's talked about in the men's relationship space is no, you got to show up for others. So if a guy is kind of recognizing that, Hey, maybe there's, you know, maybe I am too external. Where does he start in improving his relationship with himself? One of my favorite ways to tackle this is to ask men, how would you spend your days if you had a seven with seven year old with you every day, all day, what would you make sure a seven year old had? And inevitably they say, I make sure they get enough sleep, that they eat three meals, that they have time to play with their friends. They do some entertainment, take a nap in the afternoon. They have a full day. And I always ask, well, how are you doing that for yourself? And inevitably they say, not at all. That the invitation is, how do you take care of yourself like you would if you were a seven-year-old? To give yourself those basic human needs. Because how can you protect? How can you provide? How can you take care of? How can you create safety? How can you love others if you're not doing those same things for yourself? That's beautiful, man. I, I, God, I really love that whole, uh, whole perspective. And it's something I've talked about as well. The need to become childlike in certain times and the need for play, um, in, engaging activity play. You know, I think there, there's a scripture in Matthew somewhere that, you know, Jesus says those will not reach the kingdom of heaven if they something in terms of becoming childlike. Right. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of truth, you know, we, we, we kind of mentioned before, uh, we hit record, like, you know, like we've kind of removed a lot of like these fundamental truths from, from society. So I absolutely love that, that, that approach. Um, so in addition to, returning to a childlike state, what's the next step for a guy to then improve his relationship with himself? Well, it really depends on, on where that rupture is with his relationship with himself. And, you know, I think it's so individual, but there's a lot of healing that's involved and it really is getting clear on what's that core belief that he has about himself, that we all have core beliefs about who we are. I I like to call it our myth. That's what Nick and I call it in our 
in our novel is we all have a myth about who we are. And the myth is the big story. And inside of a myth, there's always a hero and there's always a monster. And a myth can't exist without either. And we call that the, the monster your minotaur. It's, uh, I'm a big Greek history buff. I loved the Iliad and the Odyssey growing up. Um, it was a huge Hellenophile, just couldn't get enough of ancient Greek stuff. And Nick's Greek, so he gets it too. Uh, that the Minotaur comes from the Greek myth about Theseus going into the labyrinth to kill this beast who had a, a bull's head in a man's body. And we each have a Minotaur lurking within ourselves. It's the nasty story we have about who we are. So as a man who is working on his relationship to himself, it's getting really clear on what is that disempowering belief about who I, that I have about who I am. Do I believe I'm not good enough for anybody or that I'm going to end up all alone in the world or that I'm a broken piece of shit? Um, excuse me. I don't know if we can curse, but um, I said it anyway. So because our beliefs, those minotaurs are really nasty and mean. And they're the things that we look to make true in the world. I don't matter is ultimately a minotaur, but they tend to be a little bit meaner than that. So once a man gets really connected with, this is my disempowering belief, this is my minotaur, then he can turn towards his higher purpose. What is his hero? Who does he want to be for the world? What is, what's the difference he wants to make for others? And that's when you start to look external. But the beautiful thing about a higher purpose is when you look to create it in the world, you're taking care of inside of it. If I look to create safety in the world, and my whole thing is I love creating home for people, a place where they feel safe enough to go take risks and be wholly authentically who they are, that when I create home for people in the world, I create home for myself. I love that, man. Are you familiar with Donald Miller's work at all? Uh, Donald's the founder of, of StoryBrand, um, which is a massive uh, marketing company. They kind of they teach how to kind of like write copy for pages and kind of how businesses can leverage the story, whether it's of the founder or the story of the mission. But his, his latest book, which I think came out last year, was called Hero on a Mission. And it literally walks through like his, you know, philosophy around what you just shared, right? Like we all are living this hero myth, right? You know, it's a, you see the hero's journey, like it sits as the undertone for so many of these great books, novels, superhero movies. I mean, you know, Christ's story, it's all rooted in the same hero's journey. And every single human being goes through this in their own life. And it's like, you got to find the guide. You got to then, you know, embark on the mission. And then you got to return back to then becoming a leader and a hero for somebody else. And I think it's just speaking exactly to what you just shared there. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I really appreciate you bringing that up, that we as humans, we live in story. The stories we tell, the stories we've told for thousands of years are how we make meaning in the world, that meaning exists through the stories that we tell. And we are the creator of our own story. And a lot of us, I think a lot of us aspire to tell that hero's journey about our lives. Um, I mean, my experience is most people are not living that journey. Uh, most people, and, and that's also, I had a really interesting conversation with another men's coach named Jason Frischman recently, and he was saying that there are actually so many versions of myth beyond the hero's journey, and that we've narrowed down to this one version of being a hero, and that there are so many in oral tradition, so many different um, frame framings for the myth beyond the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell uh from like, uh, what's the word? Popularized. 
And I think there's so much opportunity for men, for people in general, to find out what's your myth? What's the story you want to tell? Versus how do I fit my story into this framework that exists? Because we all get to be the authors of our own story. And maybe you are the hero. Maybe you're the trickster. Maybe you're the wizard. Uh, maybe you're the wise man. So it's, I think there's, there's so much space and I definitely not an expert in this. Jason Frischman is this opportunity to tell our stories differently. And I think one of the reason men are experiencing a lot of pain right now is the story that we've been taught to tell isn't working anymore. And it's time to actually create a new narrative about what it means to be men. I love that, man. Yeah. Um, dude, I want to have to have you connect me with, with Jason. I'd love to explore that conversation with him, you know, big fan of Joseph's work. I think a hero with a thousand faces, I think is the title of, of, of the book. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's speaking to, I think what, what you just shared there, it's like, like there's, you know, there's a meta story kind of, you know, that sits as the undertone for, for a lot of this. And then, you know, the, as the tentacles kind of reach out, it's like, okay, we got to find which one of these we can kind of, kind of latch onto. Um, you talked about myth, you know, uh, Greek mythology, I think is what you said was something that was very, you know, passionate for you. What role has that played, you know, in your development to childhood? And then how have you been able to link back some of these stories into the work that you're doing with men? Yeah, well, I read an abridged version of the Odyssey when I was eight and I was hooked after that. My parents read me the full poems when I was nine or 10 every night before I went to bed and I just became obsessed I loved history growing up, so I dove into the history of it that I really, I wanted to prove what actually happened to inspire the Trojan War. That was my big mission as like a 10th grader. I used to walk around high school carrying a book called The Kingdom of the Hittites filled with post-it notes. That I thought I was cool. Uh, I wasn't. I've, I've since given up being cool and realized I'm just a nerd and that's pretty cool in and of itself. Uh, Embrace but, the weirdness, bro. Like. Yeah, I love it. I love it. But I, I always look to those stories as holding some kind of human truth that these oral traditions in the Iliad and the Odyssey, which were, are about events that happened about 1250 BC and were written down at about 700 BC, were told orally for hundreds of years and probably were informed by stories that have been told orally for thousands of years. And there's something so human and, and truthful in those old oral traditions because they weren't manufactured for sales. They were told because they, they carried a certain meaning for people. And for me, I've carried that with me throughout my entire life. I've reread the Odyssey countless times, the Iliad as well, in school, outside of school. I wrote an independent study on the Odyssey my senior year of high school about what happens after Odysseus returns home to Ithaca? Uh, because the whole thing is when, when he goes to the underworld, he's told that once he goes home, he has to leave again. And it's so instrumental that for ourselves, and I relate this to our goals, that our goals are like the journey home to Ithaca for Odysseus, which is once we reach our goals, it's time to set out again. The goal is a destination that we only get to experience for a moment before it's time to journey to the next one. So it really is, I, I think, when I work with clients, both in the men's group and one-on-one, -on -one, is how do you relate to the process of your goal, the process of getting there as your result, as what to enjoy versus the fruits of your labor? Because once you accomplish what you achieved, it's time to set out again after you celebrate, after you acknowledge yourself. It's time to get back in the ship and, and go forth once more. And I've carried that with me 
I mean, into my work professionally. The most recent translation of the Odyssey, which is the first one done by a woman named Emily Wilson, she writes at the beginning that the whole poem is about how you welcome strangers into your home. And she asks in the preface, because in, in, in the Greek world, there was this law, I, forget, I think it was called Xenia, which was the law of strangers. That when someone showed up to, at your door, the first thing you did was you fed them, you gave them something to drink. And only after they had ate their full, you, did you ask who they were and where they came from. And you didn't know if they were a criminal or if they were a hero, if they were a god. And so in the preface, she, Emily Wilson, writes that to imagine someone knocks on your door and they're dressed in rags and you don't know if they're a god or a criminal or a hero, but you invite them in to sit at your table and you ask how they are. And I remember reading that and thinking, you know, how often do we as individuals not invite the parts of ourselves that we're frightened of to sit at our table? to confront the parts of our, the strangers in our soul to come sit with us. And I mean, you can extrapolate that outside the self, but I think it's so fascinating because again, I believe that how we interact with ourselves is how we interact with the world. And if we're not inviting the strangers in ourselves to sit down at our table, we're definitely not inviting the strangers out in the world to do so. Yeah, man, dude, I, I, wow. I'm, I'm locked in on this one, Jake. Um, everything you're sharing is just like, like just hitting me just like so much. I mean, you pointed to it, right? These, these foundational human truths, right? You know, like you mentioned, like this version of the Odyssey is, you know, invite the neighbor in, right? You know, like Jesus says, love thy neighbor. You know, he literally got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. Um, so I think that there's just so much truth, to all this, and I'm not sure if you're, uh, a, a fan of Jordan Peterson's work, but he talks about, you know, how these oral stories and traditions have been passed down and what, ha what makes them so meaning the fact that we can latch onto them is in order for a story to be carried orally for thousands of years through multiple, you know, multiple generations. It's like the most important parts of it were the only things that were left over. There's none of this like extra filler. Like I'm sure you've read so many books. You're like, there's, there's no need for this part to be in there, but all that has been stripped away. And it's literally like, these are just like, these are true. Like, and, and, and you can't deny any of it. Um, and then speaking to like, not inviting our stranger in. So I don't know if you're familiar with the work that I do. I mean, obviously outside of this podcast, uh, we, you know, we serve men here, but uh, my company rebuild recovery, we help guys that are struggling with a pornography addiction. And oftentimes porn, you know, has become a replacement or it's become an escape outlet. It's like, we can't sit in our own, you know, destructive thoughts. We can't sit in our own, you know, whether you want to call them demons or, you know, the minute the voice kind of rises up and said, Hey, you need to go do these things. It's like, I, I don't want to do that. Let me go run over here and try to, you know, distract, avoid, you know, sedate myself. So, what you're speaking to the importance of inviting the stranger of ourselves into, into our own lives. What are some, you know, getting it practical here, you know, in, 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 in the men's work, like how do you help men, uh, you know, begin to, to listen and, and invite that stranger of themselves in? Yeah. One, I want to say, I think the work you do is, is really important. Um, I think pornography is actually, you know, I remember being exposed to it when I was a kid and not knowing and, and uh, my dad having a conversation with me about it. And I mean, years ago, I stopped watching it because it just, I didn't like it. Um, but I have watched so many people turn to pornography over relationships because it's easy. And I mean, we live in an, addic in an addictive culture where we're constantly looking for these ways of ease versus the real grappling with our souls. 
And so the work you do is, is so valuable. And I just want to acknowledge that. Um, you know, it's a, which kind of transitions into, you know, how do you invite the stranger in? How do you confront these parts of yourself? How do you sit with that discomfort? I think part one is you don't do it alone. Because there's actually a lot of research that says healing takes place in community. And it's so important to surround yourself with other people who are similar and different. And the, when we have new members join our men's group, the first thing we do is have them share a list of 15 things they don't normally share with other people. To begin promoting and encouraging that vulnerability to be seen and that your deepest, darkest secrets, we don't really care. Like we care about your experience and what you've gone through, but unless you're someone who's really, 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 really bad, most people haven't done things so egregious that we're not going to love them anyway. And I know people have held on to secrets and not wanted to share secrets and they share them. And everyone's like, wait a second. I thought like you ran over someone's puppy. Uh, and the secret was the equivalent of, I remember one guy, he, he never, excuse me, he never graduated from college. And he told everybody he did and held on to it for 15 years. And it was this shame, this deep shame that was with him for so long. And he shared it in the group and people were like, that's it, dude. Like, that's, that's your big secret. Um, so that's part of inviting the stranger in is doing it where you're not alone at the table where you're with people you trust, where you're with people who are supporting you, with people who will put their arms around you physically and metaphorically as you invite your stranger in, um, who will sit there and listen and be empathetic, but also challenge you, challenge you to let go. I, I know when I first wrote the, the first draft of the men's group novel, I wrote about the Minotaur that you have to kill it, that you have to go into the labyrinth and cut off its head. And I was, I was so jazzed up. I was like, I got it. Like, I figured it out. You just got to, uh, like, eradicate that disempowering story you have about yourself, which is a version of the stranger. And the more work I did on it, the more I realized that, no, it's not about killing the Minotaur because your story cannot exist without it. It's about becoming friends with it. It's about loving it. It's about appreciating it. It's about acknowledging it and knowing that, it served a purpose that no longer is working for you, but it's not your enemy. It's a part of who you are. And I think that's the same thing with the stranger. How do you get to love those parts of yourself that you don't love? How do you become friends with the parts of yourself you want to avoid and run from and use pornography or alcohol or sex or exercise or television or social media? to run away from how do you become friends with that and learn to appreciate it yeah man uh dude you you touched on a couple key things there man you know healing takes place in in community man and addiction feeds itself in isolation you know we saw you know a rise in addiction suicide mental illness depression anxiety over you know 2020 2021 you know because we were all told force to say stay inside stay stay isolated you saw all these numbers massively rise up man you know i think in terms of uh, addiction like 12 steps you know they've really proven the model man you know it's like how have they been able to for over 100 years been the world's biggest organization that's helped people get off of alcohol it's like go to a weekly meeting you know stay plugged into a community but on top of that, you know, you said it's like 
with this guy, it's like, we heard that as like, oh, you just, you, you lied about going to college. But for him, it was a, it was 15 years of him not lying to other people, of him lying to himself, right? And that's now creating a relationship with himself, which we've been touching on this entire conversation of he's a fraud. So everywhere he goes, he shows up with this subconscious identity of like, I'm a liar. I'm a fraud. I'm like, and what I know about the human, you know, uh, behavioral in, in, in just a human uh, condition. Like if you see yourself as a lie, you're never going to fully be able to accomplish meaningful relationships. You're never going to be able to pursue your purpose. You're never going to be able to create real lasting fulfillment and joy. You know, I had Dr. Anna Lemke on who's uh, who runs Stanford's addiction department. She wrote the book, uh, dopamine nation has, you know, 25 years has been really leading the, the forefront on research, clinical work in the addiction space. She talked about the need for like radical honesty in, in recovery, speaking to the recovery component, right? Like you can't tell any lie, like why relate to work? You know, you weren't stuck in traffic. Like you just didn't get up on time. And it's like finding that level of like just radical honesty is so freeing to, to a soul, man. And it's like, God, it's, that's when my life changed like four years, you know, four and a half plus years ago and kind of embarked on this, on this journey. So absolutely love that you touched on that, that piece there. I want to talk about self-love, man, because I think this is a conversation that comes up quite a bit. I think that there's a lot of bad advice out there in the world right now. And I think I may have some differing views. What are, what's your take on, maybe not your take, but how would you coach or, or, or walk a guy through loving himself? Oh man, it's what a big question. Uh, again, it's so my, my coaching style is so individual related. I'm, just, I'm a very responsive coach, so it really depends on who I'm working with. But I actually just was—I'll use an example. I was just working with a client before our call. This is a, a really smart man. He's a programmer. He has a lot of ideas. Super creative, and he's had a really hard time channeling his creativity. And you can look at creativity as an act of self-love because it's a, it's a self-expression of something that is your own. And what we spent the session doing was just coming up with ideas and giving him the space to actually dream. And that's one way I would work with a client. Now, I've been working with him for about five months. So we're in the tinkering stage as we conclude our, our, our work together. And our work was a more corporate engagement. But... It was about him getting connected with the beauty and who he is versus focusing on not executing on the ideas, focus on the fact that you're having them. And I think many ways it's identifying and speaking to men. And I'm a really big fan of, a, of this process I learned from David, P, David Peterson, who's the former head of coaching at Google. He unfortunately passed away uh, this past, earlier this year. Brilliant coach, one of the, the best coaches I've ever worked with. And he said that learning is a cycle made up of action and reflection. And so everything that I do is this cycle. And I added in learning is a cycle made up of action, reflection, and sharing. And so if I'm working with a man on self-love, the first step is actually some reflection, which is what does it mean for you to love yourself? What does love mean? What's your relationship to love? How, do you, how did you experience love when you were growing up? How do you experience love now? Really for him to get connected to, what does love mean to him? Because I certainly don't have the answers for that person. That each, I, a really strong believer that the best sustainable change comes when people create their own solutions to their own opportunities. That I have my own perspective, I have my own questions, but Frank, you're, you're the expert on your life. You have experiences that I couldn't possibly know about. 
And so it would be so presumptuous of me to, for example, tell you how to love yourself, but so much more worthwhile to dig in with some exploratory questions to get you connected to what does it mean for you to love yourself and then come up with some very clear action steps to take from your insights, for example. What, what role do you see discipline, like self-discipline, uh, self-accountability, maybe structure and boundaries? playing in self-love. And here's how I kind of want to maybe, maybe point, I don't want to, I don't want to point you in a specific direction for your answer, but where I'm kind of coming or where I've come up with these ideas is we think about a parent's love for their children, right? You know, I think most parents, I don't, I don't think you have kids, but I think most parents would say that they absolutely love their children, probably more than they love themselves or anything else in the world. Now we could question if that's the right way to actually look at it, but through that expression of love for their children, they set up boundaries for what the kid can and cannot do. They put structure into their life. They make sure that they have discipline and accountability because they know that their real love is going to be their child reaching their fullest potential. I think most, so many people, I don't want to say most people, but so many men that I've encountered in, and maybe this has been a similar you know, thing for you as well, is so many men don't have any structure, accountability, discipline in their life. And they're just kind of you know aimlessly running through these things. Like you want to love yourself reach your full potential, reach absolutely everything that you are capable of doing. And I think that's my idea of like what real self-love is. Am I fully utilizing all the gifts that have been given to me? Not just utilizing them, but am I actually developing them and then using them, like using what you said there to share with the other? That's kind of the genesis of what this podcast is, right? It's like, we're here for a purpose. We need to be intentional about the development of that, but then we need to bring that purpose to the service of others throughout the world. So Chris, your thoughts around discipline, structure, accountability, and kind of uh, these, these concepts in terms of how we use that for self-love. I think they're really important. And accountability is one of the pillars that we use in our men's group. That And accountability begins with the self, but it extends beyond it. That I think it's so important for people as they grow to, to love themselves and to develop that self-love to hold themselves accountable, to allow others to hold them accountable, to share about what they're doing so that others can say, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. Uh, one of the biggest things I see in men, and I'm guilty of this to, of myself occasionally, is not taking care of my health. And so many men don't take care of their health. They drink too much. They don't exercise. They don't go to the doctor. They get hurt and instead of going to the ER, they suck it up because they're men and they know better. And all of those are versions of not loving yourself. They're versions of not thinking you matter. They're versions of not holding yourself accountable, having that vigilance to, I forget the word that you used, the, uh, the word is spacing my mind, uh, the discipline, that was the word that you used. The discipline to really take care of oneself. and really believe that that is core to self-love. Um, I mean, my, my relationship to it is a little different than reaching your full potential. I think that's one version of it. And I see that immense value of that. And I definitely relate to that to myself in certain ways. And when I think about self-love, I think it's about how can I complete every day being fully complete? Live every day like I'm alive. Because tomorrow's not promised. It's not promised I'm going to reach my potential. But did I live today aligned with my values? Did I take care of myself? Did I love fully? Did I do something that brought me joy? Did I laugh? These interstitial moments that I think so many men kind of cast off 
as no, it's about the results. It's about how much money I make and how many women, how many women I've slept with and the status of my relationships. And I'm guilty of some of those as well as human. But ultimately, I believe that self-love, that fulfillment comes from, did I really freaking enjoy today? Did I enjoy my life? And did I make it better for somebody else? And did I make it better for myself? That, that for me is that self-love. It's like, did I take care of myself today? And I think that has to do with discipline. It has to do with accountability. Uh, if I don't go to the gym, which I haven't been doing recently because I decided to prioritize writing instead, that was a version of loving myself. I was like, right now, writing is more important than the gym. And, you, and I know that that can't last forever. Eventually, I'm going to have to go back to the gym because that's going to be loving myself. It's, um, I don't believe it's, it's not static. It's fluid. It varies. And each individual, everybody who's listening, you know what it means to love yourself. Or you, if you don't have access to that now, you have the potential to figure out what it is for you. What are your thoughts on happiness? And is, is chasing happiness, pursuing happiness a worthy aim? Is it a worthy goal for a man to say, my goal is to be happy in life? Uh, one of the, my favorite lines of a workshop series I did years ago, they said happiness is like gas. It just happens. And I really like that because I, you know, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, and I think it really does depend on the individual. For me, what I chase is fulfillment and self-expression and that feeling of being alive. And sometimes that's happiness. I mean, I think that our culture prioritizes happiness. We say happiness matters above everything else. And I ran a workshop recently where I asked, I was, a, was asking, what does it mean to be alive? And people were like, it means being in flow and it means being happy. And it means like having big accomplishments and fireworks and awesomeness and what I offered was being alive also means feeling really bad. Being alive means feeling the highest highs and the, and the lowest lows. So I, my perspective is as men, as all people, to chase being alive versus being happy. Because if you chase being alive, if you're like what I like to call being in the arena, you're going to experience lots of happiness. You're also going to experience a lot of sadness that... One of my favorite coaches, his name's Sean Galanos. He's a relationship coach. He says that the buy-in for love is heartbreak. And I usually expand it. The buy-in for love and belonging is heartbreak. The buy-in for happiness is sadness. That you have to be willing to be heartbroken to be happy. And I think that requires being fully in the arena and being willing to experience all of life versus just chasing happiness because you're missing a lot. If that's your focus point, and also, and I'll say this and then I'll stop talking, uh, that when you chase happiness, you demonize sadness. And sadness is not bad. Sadness is part of being human. You can't have, you can't have the one without, without the other. You know, it's, it's the polarity and it's, it's the spectrum of, of the human emotions and, and this experience that we're all on. You know, you can't have light without darkness. You can't have sadness or happiness without sadness. You can't have good without bad. You can't have uh, any, anything, right. You know, there's always going to be a polarity. So yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think, you know, chase, chase fulfillment, chase, chase aliveness. And I love how, I love that language there. Right. It's like, God, some of the times I probably have felt most alive is, is when I've been in the most pain. Now that's not what I want to point people to, but it's like, damn heartbreak, 
physical pain, like you're reminded that you're alive. You know, sometimes when you're just kind of meandering through life, it's like, am I even really lift? Like, what the hell's going on? I'm kind of just here. Like, I'm just, I'm just a, you know, 3D, you know, flesh suit here kind of in this world. Right. But it's like, you get your heart broken, you know, as a young man, or, you know, you get knocked upside the head or you break a bone or something like that's going <laughs> to remind you that damn, like there's, there's some aliveness going on. So I, I really, I really love that language there. Yeah, I think it's so key. And I definitely didn't think like like that. And I still struggle with it. I mean, there are days when I don't feel well, and I'll email the men's group I've been in and been in for seven and a half years, the dudes of disruption. And one guy in the group routinely, he'll always respond to my emails and say, life, at, where'd you get the idea that every day has to be perfect? And I so appreciate it because it's that reminder that I, I hate feeling bad just as everybody else does, but it's part of life. And I really, you know, I see a lot of coaches out there promoting, you know, work with me for three months and transform your life and transform your results. And I was thinking my work is less about that and more about equipping people to navigate life, that life has ups and downs. It's as I write in the book, life is a turbulent storm upon a mighty sea and even turbulent storms are beautiful, that all of life is beautiful and it's, it's equipping people with the skills to navigate it and end up on the other side proud of how they've shown up. I think that, you know, that's the other, I guess that's what I'd say. You know, you talked about chasing happiness. I think it's about chasing being proud of yourself. Regardless of the results at the end of the day or the end of the year, the end of your life, are you proud of the man that you were? Are you proud of the choices that you made? Are you proud of how you navigated your mistakes? Are you proud of how you ended relationships? That that, are you proud of the choices and who you were? Like, that's the measure of a man in my mind, or that is my measure for myself. Uh, not to put that on anybody else, but I really believe that when a person is proud of who they were, the results are insignificant. Absolutely, man. No, I would 100% agree, agree with that. Um, male friendships. You know, I think I heard a stat that 11% of men that were, that were uh, questioned on this uh, report to having zero close personal friends. I may be off in that statistic. You probably know a little bit better than I do, but it's a large number, you know, 11%, one in, one in 10 men. Like if you look at a room of 10 men, like there's going to be one guy in there that has nobody in his life. And I think they define close friendships as somebody you go to in time of crisis, you know, who's you reach out to when you're having a bad day, who do you help process a breakup with? Who do you go to, you know, when you're maybe not feeling happy and you just like, dude, I'm in a rut right now. Like, so there's, there's, there's a large amount of men that don't have that person in their life. And I think you can, you can look at some movies, man. And, and I forget who I talked about this on the podcast with, but it's almost like this lone wolf syndrome has almost been kind of like heroized, right? You know, you look at a lot of superheroes, Bruce, you know, Bruce Wayne, Batman, like, you know, like lone wolf, right? He's all out there on, on himself. So it's like stories being told over here, like men don't need men. But then we look around the world and it's like, there's a crisis of men, masculinity, male relationships, and one in 10 men don't have a male figure in their life that they can go to. What's driving this? What's the root of what this crisis is? I think you nailed it with the lone wolf syndrome. I think we've, we, well, not we, but so many people here in the States grew up with John Wayne, like the lone wolf, the lone ranger, that we've idealized men going at things alone, and that it's actually manly to be alone, to do things alone, to never acknowledge if you're sad or angry or struggling. Uh, I see it a lot that it's okay to acknowledge afterwards. Like oh, I had a really tough month, but I got through it. I didn't need anybody's help. I did it myself that for some reason we've idealized that version of manhood. And 
I think the other thing is, it's just, we haven't made it okay for men to speak to other men about vulnerable things. And I think it's changing in the younger generations. I, I don't have kids, so I don't know, but I know with Gen Z, this, I think this is shifting, I think, but I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not Gen Z that when I was growing up, it, I didn't feel comfortable going to my male friends and talking about puberty or talking about girls or talking about what I was struggling with. I always remember a time in college, my best friend and I, we used to go to the campus deli every week. And when one of us was struggling, the other would look at him, look at him and say, so how's life? And it was our way of saying, I know it's really hard for you right now, but I have no idea what to say because we weren't taught that it was okay. And I would go to women. I would open up to women. It's always safe to share with women. I know a lot of men feel safer opening up with women. It's why there's so many challenges in marriages these days and relationships where a man makes his wife, uh, therapist, lover, girlfriend, spouse, mother, mom, like administrator. And it, it destroys the intimacy in a relationship uh, because no one should be that everything. And I know a lot of men, they'll say they've gotten married and if they were to get divorced, they'd have no friends because they lose their friends for their spouse's friends. And there is this, there's been this devaluization of male friendship that, or, or intimate male friendship. I think it's okay. And you see it in the media a lot shows like, Oh, go hang out with the boys, like go have some beers um, which is, there's value to that. I love, I'm going, I'm going to go hang out with a buddy of mine tonight. We're going to go get some chicken fingers and go to a play about Jaws, which I think will be really fun, but we love just going to get beer. It's like one of the things we love doing together, but we also text about our relationships. We also share about our dating lives. We also, when one of us is struggling saying like, Hey, I just needed to share this with somebody. And I think men, ha it's been taught for men to devalue that in their friendships to this huge detriment. Uh, and I've been lucky enough not to really experience that. I grew up with a lot of positive male role, role models and close friends, but it was a game changer for me when I stopped going to just the women in my life with my challenges and started opening up to other men. Yeah, man. Uh, God, it's so good. Um, you said a play about Jaws. That sounds really, that sounds really interesting. Um, you touched on something there, man, you know, kind of the, you know, the definition of, of what it means to be a man, you know, you look back at maybe our parents' generation, for one, it was a completely different world, right? You know, we're, you know, we're coming out of a, a massive world war, you know, back then, you know, we've, you know, we're facing, you know, crisis in, in, in Vietnam. And if you get into like the eighties, you know, we're kind of like, you know, cold war type of stuff. So I think the world was in a different place and dynamic. And, and obviously we didn't have access to the world like we had, we don't have access to information. So maybe there was some need for that back then, right? You know, like a lot of those men that, you know, lived that way, built the world that we're now, you know, getting a chance to, you know, live off of. And I think that's amazing, but if we're going to redefine masculinity today, where do we start? with that conversation? I think we start with what does it mean for you to be a man? What does it mean for me to be a man? What does it mean for my friend to be a man? What does it mean, what does it mean for my brother to be a man or my father? Now, one of the things I learned in writing the book is that masculinity is personal. That what it means for me to be a man is probably different than what it means for you to be a man. And that there's validity in both. And I think there are some common male themes that we see across masculinity that are, that are important. Um, but I think they can be limiting too. 
And I think it's allowing that breadth of everyone individually to connect with well, what does it mean for me to be a man? Just like we were talking earlier about these ancient stories, I have a feeling if you were to ask that question to a thousand men, there would be a lot of similarities. There would be a through line, there'd be a theme, and there'd be a lot of differences. And I think it's so important as we step into this new age of masculinity, not, to, not new aged masculinity, not to be confused with that, but this new age of masculinity to honor the opportunity for men to define what it means for them to be men, uh, to embrace masculinity, to embrace what it feels like to be a powerful man, uh, and know that for each of us, it might be a little different, it might be similar, it might be different. And I think it's that space to really explore and to be inquisitive and to ask the questions of, is this version of masculinity mine? Or is it the one that I think I should be adhering to? And it's like given that conscious choice of who do I want to be as a man? What is the legacy that I want to leave? How do I want to be remembered? And I think that has immense power. So much of my work has to do with who do you want to be? And ultimately, I think that is who do, who do I want to be as a man? Uh, but I, I would never pretend to say I know what it means to be a man because I think that each one of us has a different definition of what that means. And it's so valuable to consider and allow people to choose what it means for them to be men. Yeah. I, you know, we've talked a lot here today about, you know, foundational truths, man. So maybe this is not a cross for everybody, but maybe for you, Jake, like in, in your life, you know, who, who is the man that Jake is trying to become? Like what, what's, what does that look like? Can you give us, can you give us, you know, some definitions there or, or some pursuits of, of what it means in, in, in your life that maybe the audience, the listeners here today, the men will, can get value and maybe point them in the direction of even asking these questions for themselves? Yeah, I love that question. It just gave me chills down my spine. So that's a good indication of a good question. For me, I, I always aspire to be authentic, courageous, and trusting. That's foundational. For me as an individual, as a man... I want to be remembered as being honorable, loving, and kind. That I think honor, to be an honorable man, is so important and so lacking in our world today. And honor means different things for different people. But for me, being honorable means communicating clearly. It means being compassionate. It means holding firm and standing with conviction. It means being directive and not saying, I don't know. It means listening generously and really trying to understand and put myself in another person's shoes that that honorability being honorable like for me that's what it means to be a man like a, a for me my version vision of what it means to be a man a man is someone who is honorable um i think that i think the world needs honorable men and one of the things our group we often talk about is how do you leave relationships and people suck at leaving relationships it's, and you think about it, how you leave a relationship is the legacy that you leave. And we will all leave every relationship we've ever been in because we will all pass away. And so how can we be honorable as we leave? Is a conversation that we ask, we, that comes up a lot in our, our men's group. How do you leave honorably? But not just how do you leave honorably, how do you live honorably? I love that, man. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about the exiting of a relationship in that way like that that's 
That's really good, man. Because yeah, I mean, the only relationship, I mean, that we have from the day that we're born until the day we die is the one with ourselves. Every other relationship is, 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 is shorter. You know, you're going to have a hand, you know, you're going to have a handful of them that are with you until the end. But most of these relationships, you know, couple years, five years, you know, they're kind of seasonal, you know, this was a relationship that I had in this season of my career over here. This was a relationship when I, when I lived in this community, this was a relationship when I had, when I attended that church over there, this was, you know, my 20 year old dating relationship that, you know, broke my heart. It's like, you know, or, or this is the one that I needed to walk away from because you cheat on me. And it's like, even thinking about how do we leave and exit some of these things, that's something I've never even put any, any type of thought to. I think it's so important. And I, I didn't, before I joined my first men's group and we started talking about how do you leave honorably? And in the way we run our groups is they start and they have no end. And so people come in and people leave and there's always an opportunity. How is someone leaving the group? And that's as a metaphor for your life. How are you leaving your people? And I know for me, it was, I think there's been several moments where I became a man. And one of them was when I left a four-year relationship that I look at that moment. I think that was when I became a man because I chose to leave that relationship in an honorable, loving, and kind way. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And one of the things I'm most proud of, because that was me being a man. And I look at so much in our society, and listen, it's not, I had a conversation on another podcast recently, you can't always leave a relationship honorably. Sometimes you just got to get out, especially if it's an abusive, dangerous one. But I think you can always be honorable with yourself. And again, it comes back to proud of the choices you made, that that is part of being honorable. And I, I think if more people thought about how they left relationships than how they started them, the world would be a very different place. Mic drop with that one, man. Um, yeah. And I, I would say in that toxic, you know, abusive type relationship, like you're honoring yourself and you're honoring, you know, your, your, your future by exiting that. So I think that honor can be in that maybe not to honor the person that's abusing you, but they're probably not actually... Uh, they haven't earned that. And not that honor needs to be something that's earned, but you know, like if they're abusive and destructive to you, like you honor yourself and you honor the other relationships in your life. So uh, this has been great, Jake. Yeah, this is, this is, this is awesome, man. Uh, tell the guys where, uh, where they can connect with you. You know, where, where's the best place to find your work. I know you run some groups. I know you do some executive coaching. Where do you hang out socially? Uh, and then we'll wrap the conversation up with our last and final question. Awesome. Well, first, Rich, Rich, Frank, <laughs> <laughs> Looking at you. It's all good, brother. I got. I, I have man. relationships in my life that have been relationships for twenty years that call me rich. So okay. it's, it's I'll call you rich. Okay. Yeah. All right, rich. Well, first, just thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. I really value your insight and your perspective, and getting to talk about all of this. For those of you interested, you can find me in a couple places. I'm on Instagram at at the coach Jake. I don't post very often, but I am there. You can also find me at jakefishbein.com and at thearenaseries.com. That's where the men's work is. And keep an eye out on bookshelves for sometime in the indeterminate future for the men's group by Jacob Fishbein and Nicholas Papadopoulos. It's going to be out there eventually, and it's going to change the world. So really excited for that in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for that as, as well. Guys, we'll have all that information plugged down there in the show notes. If you're watching it on YouTube, it will be in the video description. And uh, Jake, man, let's stay connected, stay plugged in, man. If there's anything we can help you with, uh, with the launch of the book, you know, I think it'll be obviously something that will be really helpful um, and needed for the men here as well. So uh, that's great. And I really, really appreciate your time and insights uh, on everything here today as well. I think we touched on um, 
some things through a, through a perspective that I haven't I haven't you know discussed here. You know, at 217 episodes. It's it's interesting. You always learn something new, man. So I absolutely appreciate you as well. Uh, we like to end every episode here with the same question. Obviously, the title of the show is called "The Superhuman Life." I touched on it a little bit uh, earlier on about my views. Uh, and beliefs around what living a superhuman life is. And it really is a belief system for me. It's a way that I try to show up in the world. Uh, and it's and it's coming from the place that I do think that we're put here for a purpose. Like Jake and Frank aren't talking today uh, by accident. There's there's meaning and purpose behind all of this. Uh, but knowing that there's a purpose, I don't believe is enough. You must be intentional about your development uh, of that purpose and then, and then bringing that to the service of others, right? And that's obviously why we, 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 we do this podcast for free. So that's my take. That's my thought wrapped up, you know, about what it means to live a superhuman life. But I always lend... I always like to end the episodes by getting in the guest state. So Jake Fishbein, how would you find living a superhuman life? Oh man, what a great question. Oh, what it means to live a superhuman life. What comes to me right away is like living all out, like being authentically you, self-expressed and living to the fullest. That doesn't mean not having regrets. It doesn't mean not making mistakes. But it means really going for it. And at the end of the day, I guess living a superhuman life means looking back at it at the end and thinking, I'm proud of who I chose to be. Absolutely, man. Chasing chasing that full potential. Uh, guys, connect with Jake. Follow him on, on, on IG. Check out the website. Check out the arena series. Do some great work in the men's coaching space. You got value out of this episode, guys. You can uh, support us in one of two ways. You know, we've seen a lot of tremendous growth here over the past few months, and it's all because you guys are out there sharing this episode. So if there's a man in your life that needs to hear today's conversation, do us a favor, but do him the blessing by sharing this conversation. And you can support us by leaving a five-star rating, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you are on. So do not forget to leave that rating. Do not forget to subscribe and share this with at least one man in your life. But for Jake Fishbein, Frank Richard, host here, we love you guys. We'll see you next week.